11, Romans chapter 11. I should probably warn you, uh, today's sermon will be just a bit different. Uh, it, is, it is loaded with information. It is, it is kind of the culmination of a bit of an argument that, that Paul seemingly has gone off on a tangent in, and yet he's really continuing to build on this idea of an assurance of our faith, that he's speaking to our doubts. And, and he's really specifically talking about uh, Jew and Gentile believers that are in the church in Rome. But he's kind of finishing out a thought today before we get to Romans chapter 12. But he's going to finish that thought where he actually lays the foundation for what Romans chapter 12 is built on. When he says, in light of the mercies of God, this is how it is that we're to present ourselves. That's the, cha- the passage that will be in next Sunday, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so we are looking to God's word today, not to get into things as it relates to the nation of Israel, not to wade into the politics of the day, even as the nation of Israel has been very much in the news in the last few weeks. We're not wading into political things. We're not uh, wading into issues of nationalism or race or anything like that, although we are aware that historically uh, there have been things that passages like this have caused uh, people to actually suppress and go after Jewish people because of the thought of what they have done to Christ. Actually, today, what Paul is doing is he is not introducing new issues like universalism or multiple covenants for Jew and Gentile or anything like that. He is actually pointing us to the one Christ who is the new covenant. And he says that in the midst of this theology, Paul is going to himself kind of run to the end of his own knowledge. He's going to get to this place where he just goes, I am at a place where I can't explain it anymore. And then he's just going to, he's going to worship. And, and, and oftentimes when we're gathered or when we re- reference worship, we talk about the part of our service that is service and song, where ours is a sung faith. Ours is a faith that, that sings, and I love that about our faith. And Paul is going to kind of break into song as he's considering the depths of the truth of God, and as he realizes, I can't go deep enough and understand this fully enough. And that might be a frustration for some. Because you heard me say a few weeks ago, God is bigger than the questions that we have. God is actually addressing things that go on at the very core of who we are, that we can bring our questions to God. And we're certainly going to see that happen today. And we realize that he's actually under no obligation to answer them. There are mysteries in the truth of who God is. There is mystery in the gospel. There is mystery in his election and his sovereign choosing for those who are his covenant people. And what should it lead to in us as a church? It should lead to worship, not just through song, but lives that are lived for his glory alone. Why? Because from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So Paul's going to explore that today, and we're going to look at that today. And the reason I say that today may seem a little bit different is there are so many Old Testament references. There are so many illustrations that Paul just kind of starts firing off on. It can sometimes be difficult to keep up with. So I I wanted to try to do this to help us just understand this very simply today. I I thought it might be helpful to just put it this way. Romans 11 basically does this. It, it kind of bring, calls our attention to realize that God sees his covenants through. God sees his covenants through as his people, our response is to praise him. 
God sees his covenants through, and as his people, our response is to praise him. Now, we've been kind of wrestling with some bigger questions in the midst of Romans chapter 9 through 11. Consider Romans chapter 9 where we're, we're wondering about, does the word of God fail in some way? Is it, is it maybe just not powerful enough for something that we may be facing? And the answer to that is no, as Paul plays out for us. Uh, maybe chapter 10, how can anyone be saved? If Israel has people that are lost, how can anyone be saved? And Paul says it's through Jesus Christ that people can receive salvation. And he, he kind of orders out this, this chain of salvation for people to be able to follow. He's been pointing to it multiple times. But he's also going to make sure that we understand that Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the one mediator. He is the one who makes and fulfills this new covenant. And so we come to this last question in Romans chapter 11. Does God reject his covenant people? Does God reject his covenant people? And and maybe here we get to a place where we realize there are some real world implications of this in our lives. Oftentimes the the, the most recognizable covenant that still happens today is the covenant of marriage. And so if God is not going to see a covenant through, how is it that I would be able to have any strength to see a covenant in marriage through? How is it that I would ever be able to be faithful if even God can't see his covenants through? And Paul's going to actually parse out the people of Israel and say, these were his covenant people. How is it that he has left some of them in the covenants that he made with them? And Paul's going to explore that question a little bit more. And today as a church, I pray that what this does for us is it stirs our faith. It causes us again to just be in awe and wonder of the good news of the gospel. That he would choose us at all to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his covenant people. But more than that, that we would realize if God sees his covenants through especially for marriages in our church. This is my prayer for us today. And I'm not trying to highlight marriage in some way. But if we're supposed to be representative of the mystery of the gospel in our marriages, I'm going to need the help of God to do that. And I'm assuming you do too. And if you're here today and you're single and it's like, well, then I'm going to check out. Please don't do that. I'm not assuming that you've been called to be single for the rest of your life. That's a high calling to be sure. But maybe there's a way that God wants to expose you to his faithfulness today that gives you faith for the future and the faithfulness that he'll call you to in this life until he returns. Maybe there's a way that he wants to stir you to pray for the couples that are in this church, to pray for the marriages that are around you. We need it desperately. There's a world that wants to tear that down around us. And and this is not the world is the devil kind of a comment. This is not we're trying to find the devil in every detail of the world and culture and all that kind of stuff. This is the reality of what we're told in Scripture, that we have an enemy that seeks to steal and kill and destroy. That is something that God established from the beginning, the covenant between a man and a woman. In marriage. And so if God can't see his covenants through, what hope do we have? And we're going to realize today that God does see his covenants through. And the response from us is his people is to praise. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 11 in Romans. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I am myself an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. 
But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, late in the year last year during our season of Advent in our series on Sabbath rest, we actually looked at this account of Elijah from 1 Kings 19. So I'm not going to give that as much time and attention today, but here Paul is basically doing this. He's kind of reaching in the Wayback Machine. He's reaching back to that 1 Kings 19 account to draw his attention to something very specific. What is it that Paul wants to draw his attention to? He wants to draw their attention to the fact that there was a remnant that was already in place and it was larger than Elijah could have imagined. There was a remnant in the midst of that covenant that there was a remnant. And there's always been a remnant is basically what Paul wants to help us understand in Romans 11 verses 1 through 6. There has always been a remnant. And Paul is going to offer some pieces of evidence. It's almost as if he's kind of building out this case. He's going to offer some pieces of evidence to help us understand that there's been a remnant. What what are the pieces of evidence that he offers? Well, first of all, there's a personal piece of evidence. That Paul says of himself, I I am a Jew. I am a Jew who has been saved by grace. So he offers his own testimony. He offers his own story as a part of the evidence that there has always been a remnant, even in the midst of the covenant people. What's the second one? As we we consider the study of God, we're what we might consider a, a theological That just simply just means the study of God, right? The theological evidence is this. Does God break an unbreakable covenant? And the answer is no. And in answering this question, Paul underlines this by describing the people in verse 2 as his people whom he foreknew. His people who he foreknew. The ones that he knew were chosen for that role to be in the remnant. Foreknowledge and rejection uh, in and of themselves are incompatible in God's nature. It's amazing to think about that, isn't it? Because it seems like in talking about election and God's sovereign choosing that that it's like, well, there's this idea that he rejects some. And yet as we read at the end of chapter 10 last week, what is God doing? He is standing there with his arms extended toward his people. And what happens? Their hearts are hardened. And they just continue in their own way. And we're going to see that in a new way today in just a few verses. So we've seen a personal and a theological piece of evidence. What's the next piece of evidence? I said that there were four. There's a biblical piece of evidence. He's actually going to appeal to the Scripture. He's going to go back and he's going to say that that the doctrine of, of the remnant was not actually fully developed until the time of Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah at the end of Romans chapter 11. It wasn't fully developed there, but... He is saying that even in Elijah's day, there was a remnant of 7,000. When he says this, he says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant. And it was, it was sizable. Even, even in his time, in his contemporary time, he's looking back and he's saying, even now there is a remnant. It's represented in this church where Jews and Gentiles worship together here in the church in Rome. So he's offering biblical evidence. And he has a contemporary evidence as well. So it's personal, it's theological, it's biblical, and it's contemporary. Why why does Paul bring this type of evidence to this passage? His objective here is to insist that grace excludes any works on our part entirely. He wants us to understand that grace is grace and not works. 
Not even a little bit of works. Not even a little bit of effort. And he goes on in verse 7 to say this. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. We saw that just a moment ago. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block. And we saw that a few weeks ago. And a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Romans 11.11 goes on to say this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion need? See here Paul begins again by using the word hardened. We looked at this over the last few weeks in a little bit more detail. But when he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, he speaks of a stupor. A stupor that comes upon them. Now, Isaiah is one of only two uses of this word in what's called the Septuagint. That is the the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's one of two times that that's used. It's a word that is kind of uh, used to add in some kind of layer of severity to help us understand. We're not just talking about hardened. We're talking about like there was no option for them. They they were at this place where they couldn't do anything. And, And so he's kind of layering his language a little bit here to add emphasis. In the case of hardness... Of heart, this helps us to understand that stupor actually is a spiritual numbness. A spiritual numbness. As I've been preparing throughout this last week, really the the, the example that comes to mind is the song by The Weeknd, where he says, I can't feel my face when I'm with you. And what is he doing there? It's a catchy tune, but be careful singing it, right? He's talking about a woman as if she was drugs. He's talking about a woman as if he's done a line of coke. He's talking about a woman in a way that says, I have become numb to this because of this woman. And so I will just say this. If you hear the song and it's catchy, and I know I'm referencing it right now, it's going to be playing out in the world. Be careful of a song like that. Because what he's actually talking about describes something very biblical, a spiritual numbness. He gets to a place where he is so addicted to something that he just cannot respond in any other way. And it's referencing both a relationship with a woman and his own addiction to drugs. It's a stupor. It's a stupor that is like very present and prevalent in the world even today. We need to be mindful of that as believers. We need to be mindful of that so that we don't go into that spiritual stupor as well and give ourselves over to that. So we realize that there is a sting of stupor. It's something that actually, in the midst of this hardening that's happening, there's, there's this sting. It's almost like the Novocaine that's given or something that's going to numb where an incision is going to happen. And he's using these Old Testament quotation. And they're referring to spiritual eyes that can't see, that there's a spiritual numbness that's happening here. Deuteronomy 29 is the other place, in addition to Isaiah 29, where the, the word stupor is used. 
It's the, it, it's the condition of this, that you can see the wonders of God in creation, as Paul appealed to in Romans chapter 9. You can see the wonders of God in creation, how it is that he reveals himself through this general revelation of who he is, as we talked about two weeks ago. You can see the things of God, and they can be beautiful to you, but they don't turn your affections toward God because you're numb. You've become numb to them. There's something very beautiful about God's creation. There's something very attractive about God's creation. And yet if it doesn't lead us to worship, we are in the state of that spiritual numbness. Paul wants them to understand that there is a stupor that continues to plague the world even today. If it was true for the church in Rome, how much more true is it for us today as well? So we realize there has been a remnant but the majority are spiritually numb, hardened in a way that has been the nation's spiritual norm all along. The nation of Israel, that is. Their condition is not permanent or hopeless, though, and this is the good news. Their condition is not permanent or hopeless. What a picture of God's merciful providence when we read the last verse, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean. Think about what the ESV study Bible says. It says it like this, full inclusion looks forward to the fulfillment of God's saving promises to ethnic Israel. Paul argues from the lesser to the greater, if Israel's sin brought salvation to the Gentiles, then the believing, then the blessing will be even greater. And as we continue on today, we're going to see how Gentiles are grafted in, as Paul says. They are grafted into these blessings and promises through Jesus Christ. Let's continue to read Romans chapter 11, verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So he's turning his attention. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who are supposed to be the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But if you stand fast through faith, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now I appreciate, as, as I've been studying, how John Stott helps us to understand where it is that we're in Paul's thought process here. So let's just pause for a moment and consider where it is that Paul is in his thought process John Stott goes on to say it like this. Paul's sequence of thought is like a chain with three links. First chain, first link I should say. Though Israel's, or through Israel's fall, salvation has already come to the Gentiles. Second link, this Gentile salvation will make Israel envious and so lead to Israel's restoration or fullness. Third, Israel's fullness will bring yet much greater riches to the world. Thus the blessing ricochets from Israel to the Gentiles, from the Gentiles back to Israel, and from Israel to the Gentiles again. Keeping up? I know, it's challenging. 
That's why I'm not throwing in a ton of extra illustrations. Paul's, Paul's on a train of thought here, and we're just trying to hold on, right? The first stage has already taken place, Stott says. It is the ground on which the second and third may confidently be expected to follow. So in helping us to understand what John Stott referred to as a chain's links, Paul uses two different metaphors. One is taken from the ceremonial life of Israel, and the other one is coming from agriculture. And what he's wanting us to understand here is how it is that Gentiles are grafted in. We're looking really kind of at that section from uh, Romans eleven thirteen through Romans eleven twenty one. Both are really clearly intended to justify Paul's confidence in the spread or escalation of covenant blessings that he has been describing. Let's look first at the ceremonial life. As when a representative piece of dough, now he's talking about what was happening in the church back in the Old Covenant, when a, a ceremonial piece of dough would be consecrated to God, the whole piece of dough belongs to him. Everything is from him. So when the first converts believe, the conversion of the rest can be expected to follow, right? Because a part of it, the whole belongs to him. That's the first metaphor that Paul is going to focus on. And he kind of he does so in, in passing. So it may be like, Paul, where are you heading here, man? Well, then he jumps into horticulture. As, as the Jewish patriarchs belong to God by covenant, so do their descendants who are included in the covenant. This picture of the root and the branches leads Paul to develop his allegory of the olive tree. He's looking at the olive tree here. The cultivated olive tree is the people of God. It's the covenantal special relationship with the people of God, whose root is in the patriarchs, whose stem represents the continuity of the centuries. So here's where we see the covenants of God are all one unified story that really point to who Jesus is. They're all pointing to that. And we're going to see the fulfillment of these things in eternity. But it gives us confidence for today. And we realize where it is that we are in this kind of grand narrative of Scripture. Where is it that Jesus is meeting us today? Paul wants us to understand when we're, when we're tracing this line, we're tracing this kind of crimson thread that runs through Scripture, as, as some authors have said, pointing to Jesus Christ. But we realize that what Paul is saying is that this olive tree has experienced two things. It has experienced pruning and grafting. That's not normally something that you would do. You wouldn't normally take the time to prune a tree and then be like, I shouldn't have cut that piece off. Let me, let me grab something else and graft it in to cover up my mistake. God hasn't made a mistake here. And in using this illustration from horticulture, what Paul is trying to help us understand is the expansion of the covenant and the expansion of the kingdom of God. How it is that we who are not uh, Jewish by birth, who are not Jewish by heritage, how it is that we can be included in the covenant blessings of who God is. God hasn't made a mistake. He's not grasping at the wild things of the world like, uh, I need to have this certain number to be glorified. No, what he's exposing to us is his merciful heart toward us as his creation. And he's using this olive tree that has both been pruned and, and other branches grafted in to help us understand that. So there's a caution for us. Those who are from Gentile descent, those who today may look at this and just wonder like, I don't understand what the Jewish people didn't get. 
This was like against everything they had been raised in in tradition. There's a reason he's wanting them to understand that grace is not about the works that they do. It's not about the laws that they keep. It's not about the ways that they just keep things just right. It's not about what they have kind of attached to themselves, leading them forward in terms of the law. He wants them to understand that this is all of grace, not their effort. But the the caution for us today is clear. Don't become arrogant because it's only by faith that you're able to stand. Now, as his people, that was, that was where we're kind of seeing where it is that God is going to see his covenants through. Let's turn our attention now to see that as his people, our response is to praise him. Beginning in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God, Paul goes on to say. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too would be cut off. And even they... If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, Paul reaches back and quotes from Isaiah again, as we've mentioned before. He starts bringing the Old Testament to life in some very unique ways in Romans chapter 9 through 11. He's, he's helping his Jewish hearers to make connections from the stories of old. He's helping his Gentile hearers understand what it is that, that their Jewish brothers and sisters are walking through. And he, what he wants them to understand is that the covenants and laws that they have been given, they may still be placing their trust in those things. They may still be placing their trust in something other than Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them to make the connection that Jesus is the one who's the promised Messiah. He's actually going to quote from some messianic psalms in just a moment. He is, all of this is pointing to who Jesus is. And so if you struggle with keeping up with what is it that, that I should understand about the covenants or what is it that I should understand about olive trees, should I plant those in my front yard? Not necessarily. I'm not even sure like how that works in Florida. When I was talking to our design team, I kind of asked them, I was like, hey, olive, olive branches are like really hot in design right now. And I mean, JoJo's got them all over like Magnolia website, right? And so... I was kind of asking them, is that something that we should do that just helps people make the connection? And they told me no. They let me know that that was not going to happen. I said, okay, that's cool. Uh, but I'm realizing now why is that? Well, it's because what this is representative of is it's actually the covenant of God that he sees through. And when I interact with the covenant of God, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the new covenant in Jesus Christ. I'm not falling back on something else. That's, it's not outdated. It was pointing to Jesus, but it's not Jesus himself. I don't want to fall back or lean in my own understanding in something that is, is back there. I want to lean into who God has provided for me in Jesus Christ right now. I want to be one who lives from the good and the blessing of that because there is going to be difficulty enough in this world living in that way. Don't add layers from the past in the midst of it. 
So he's going back and he's bringing to life some of the stories of old from the Old Testament. Some of the things that in the, in the Old Covenants were pointing to who Jesus is. But let's be careful. This is not some Pauline version of universalism. When he says that all of Israel will be saved, this is not some, some new way of saying that everybody's going to be saved so it doesn't really matter how it is that we live. No, Paul's going to get pretty explicit in Romans chapter 12 about how it is that we should live. Actually, through the rest of the book, he's going to be talking all about what the effect of, of these gospel truths, the depths of these truths are on us and our relationship to others. I think I should just say this here. Buckle up, church. God's got some stuff to say to us as a church. Romans 12, you might think, finally, something I can understand. You may be able to understand it, but try to live it without the Spirit of God's power. So we take the time here. We take the time to look at what it is that God's saying, and we want to do this. We want to reject the idea that this is some form of universal salvation for Israel. This is Paul pointing all of his hearers to where it is that they can truly place all of their hope and their trust and their faith, and that is the person of Jesus Christ alone, the promised Messiah. What does this all lead to? Verses 22 through 27 are going to show us that it is hope in Jesus Christ. Consider the great salvation that's available to us through Jesus, Jew or Gentile alike. This salvation is available. The one representative of the true remnant of Israel Jesus is the one who points us to the truth that salvation beginning to end is all of grace through his finished work on our behalf. Jesus choosing for himself who it is that would be grafted into who he is as the vine. It reminds me of the words that Jesus says in John chapter 15. Consider verses 4 and 5 with me. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That seems pretty clear. Where else is he telling us to put, his, put our hope? Nowhere. What are we called to do? Take up shelter and home and comfort and refuge in him as the vine. Abide in him. Those are some of the definitions of that word abide. So whether you're walking through the glory or the garbage of life, abiding in him is what you're invited to do. Because apart from him, we cannot bear any fruit. 15.5 goes on to say this in John. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is him that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Why does that matter? Is there any hope for us to find salvation through our efforts based on what Jesus just said? No. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This points us to the things that we see as the pillar of the truth that we want to build, that we see in Scripture, we want to build this church on, that it's by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone in our praise, in the way that we live our lives. What helps us understand this? What, what is it that, that brings light and depth to our path of understanding? Well, it is Scripture alone 
Scripture alone helps point us to what we'll see in verses 28 through 32, that the foundation of our praise is what? It's mercy. And can I say this? It's, it's helpful for us to remember this, that the chapters and verses that we see in Scripture are, are a, a divider that's put in later. Because we cannot read verses 28 through 32 of Romans chapter 11 and not realize that he's going to reference it again in the first verse of Romans chapter 12. Actually, let's just look at that together. If you've got your Bibles open, what is he going to say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, based on the mercies of God. This is not some disconnected tangent that he's been off on. He wants us to understand something very clearly, that we're not going to be able to live out of the good of anything if we're not fully dependent on the good of the mercies of God. So when we cast ourselves on mercy, we're not doing so hoping it will come through. We're doing so saying it's the foundation of who I've been called to be in Jesus Christ. Everything is the sp- springs from that. Everything springs in life from the mercies of God. And so Paul begins to build the foundation of mercy here in 11, 28 through 32. Let's read together. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Isn't that amazing news? Just pause there for a second with me. Saying it kind of like God sees his covenants through. That's real easy to say as we're sitting in church together. That's real easy to say as we're kind of gathered with other believers and we're all looking heavenward together. And I think that that's why the community of the church matters so much. But here's the truth of who God is. His calling and his gifts are irrevocable. That's amazing news for us today. Not just that he calls us, but he gives good gifts to build us up, to serve one another through. His calling and his gifts are irrevocable. Verse 30 goes on to say this, For just as you were at at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy... Because of their disobedience, he's speaking of Israel again. Again, he is addressing the Gentiles that are gathered. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned to all disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You know, I wonder just as as I'm reading here, What are the things that God is stripping away in your life that you might be putting your hopes in? Even just now as you're hearing these verses, and and it may be difficult to keep up. I understand it's been difficult to prep. But is there something that the Holy Spirit might be showing you right now? And what I mean by that is really this. Like, you're looking at your life and you're thinking about your life the other 166 hours of the week when we're not gathered together like this or when you're not gathered in somebody's living room in a community group and you're going, you know, I know the right way to act in those moments or I know the right way to act when I'm emailing or calling one of the pastors or something along those lines. But there's a whole lot of life that happens where my hope is being put somewhere else. And, and what I mean by the Holy Spirit revealing it is that's what's coming to mind right now as I'm speaking. 
This is not some way for me to put a thought in your head as if, as if I'm a magician or something like that. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit reveals to us what it is that we put our hopes in so that he can strike that away. Maybe that has just vanished in some way through a job or a relationship change. I don't know what it is. But can I say that? This, that is a good gift to you for eternity. If the Holy Spirit is revealing something to you that you're putting your hope in that's not Jesus Christ, that is a gift to you for eternity. I want to acknowledge the pain or the sting of the moment of maybe something that is related to your vocation or something that's related to a relationship that you loved very much. But if any of those things get disordered from loving God first, he will strip those things away. Holy Spirit, here's our prayer right now. As a church filled with ones in need of mercy, as we become aware of our friends' stories, may we be ones who express mercy first. As we become aware of those around us that you are revealing things that they have put their hope in, may we be ones who help point to the true hope that we have in Jesus Christ alone. May that be a mark of the community of Metro Life Church. May I cast myself on mercy never be seen as weak. May it be seen as something that we are only given the power to say by the Holy Spirit. And may lives be changed because of it. For your glory, God. Paul wants to offer a couple of more statements of assurance. What's the first one? That his election is irrevocable. We've spent some time on that, but what, is, what else does he want to know? That God's mercy is available to all. John Stott says this about this section of Scripture. It is because of disobedient Israel that disobedient Gentiles have received mercy. And it is because of this mercy to disobedient Gentiles that disobedient Jews will receive mercy too. We see that back and forth that we've been kind of talking about in Paul's train of thought. We again detect the chain of blessing as Israel's disobedience has led to mercy for the Gentiles, which will in turn lead to mercy for Israel. Now as we've considered this passage, we have considered some very deep truths We've kind of skirted into some territory. Let's just name a couple of them, right? You you may be familiar with some of these terms depending on how much you have studied theology or over the years you may have heard these terms. There's deep truths like a remnant theology, a theology of the remnant, or a spiritual stupor or hardening. That's the implications of the doctrine of election. We've kind of come into the new covenant representing the culmination of all the other covenants through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. How should we respond as a church today to these deep truths? How should we live in light of all of this? Like, what difference should this make this week? What difference should this make this week? I love how H.B. Charles, a pastor in Jacksonville, said it. He says this, Followers of Jesus Christ must both think and act biblically. 
we must avoid undevoted theology and untheological devotion. Isn't that a great summary of Romans chapter 9 through 11? Couldn't I have saved us a lot of time just reading that a couple weeks ago? Maybe. We must avoid undevoted theology and untheological devotion. When we consider the depths of these truths, when we're trying to answer the question of so what, when we're trying to consider what difference should this make, what is it that Paul, uh, that Paul wants us to understand more than that? What is it that the heart of God wants us to understand? How it is that we're called to respond? We worship. We worship. I'm not just talking about singing. I'm talking about a life that displays how worthy our Savior is. I'm talking about, as Paul will say in just a few sentences, a living sacrifice. I'm talking about a no to the things of this world and a yes to the things of God that we're going to see next Sunday. I'm talking about worship that means that all of our life is poured out like incense before heaven until it is that we'll be there with him for eternity. How do we respond? Same way Paul did. We worship. Romans 11.33 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Church, can we stand together? We're going to sing in just a moment. I want us just to consider a few things as, as we draw to a close today. What informs our worship as a church? What informs our worship as individuals? What informs our worship in community groups and in the ministries that we have throughout this church? What informs our worship as we consider any gathering that we're together with other believers? If it's anything other than these things, we might be worshiping the wrong thing. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. They're not something that we can ever plumb fully in this life. There, there is something about us being finite and God being infinite that this points us to. That his riches are deeper than we can go. It's something that is unfathomable to us. That his judgments are ones that are not something that we're going to hold to some kind of an account. That his judgments are not something that we can look at and go, I think you made a mistake here, God. That his ways are unfathomable. There is this inscrutable nature of who God is. There is this control that he has in bringing his salvation to his people. Based on Isaiah and Psalms, Paul asks us two, three questions. He says this, who's ever figured out his mind? Who's ever told God what to do? Can I just confess here? I think I've done that a time or two. Which is probably an understatement. I've certainly tried.
Who's ever figured out his mind? Who can tell him what to do? Who has ever made God his debtor? How is it that we could make the one who owns all things indebted to us? That's what Paul wants us to understand. He recognizes that all things are from God, that that God alone is the one who is the source, that all things are through God, that he alone is the means, and all things are to God, that he alone is our goal. So church, let's live like it. Let's sing like it. Let's pray like it. Let's, Let's be in his word like it. Let's Consider the depths of truths and when we hit the rock bottom of what it is that we can understand and our eyes are blurry from reading or maybe crossed or something like that and our mind is full and, and it almost like leading to this headache, let's do this. Let's lift our hands and let's open our voice in praise to who God is. Why? Because his ways are unsearchable. His riches, his thoughts, his mercy is unfathomable. Here's the good news for us today. If all of those things are true about God and if God is, if Jesus is fully God and fully man, then those things are true about his salvation power for us today. If all of those things are true, those things are true about the gifts of the Holy Spirit available to us today. If all of those things are true about God the Father and his goodness and his mercy and his kindness, all of those things rush to us through Jesus. They rush to us through the Holy Spirit that we might be ministered to in our time of need. We are going to experience times of needs, but can I tell you this? When you look to God in your time of need, his ways can never be exhausted because they are unfathomable. They are inscrutable. There is a depth to them that we can never exhaust. And how good is the news for us as a church today? It's not just about covenant theology. It's not just about remnant theology. It's not just about all of these things. It's about pointing to who God is and who he will always be as worthy of our praise. And so church, let's praise him together right now.